What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. In for Adam and Josh this week, I'm Scott Tobias. And I'm Genevieve Kosky. Go, 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 go! I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay! So, we're recording the show in the back of a car with a motorcycle gang chasing us. Genevieve, was this a good idea? Oh yeah, Tom Cruise is at the wheel, Scott. We'll be fine. Oh, that's comforting. <laughs> Cruise is back in the driver's seat and in theaters this weekend with Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Our review, plus the top five trends that make us excited about the future of movies. Tom Cruise hanging from the side of an airplane is a trend I can get behind. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is brought to you this week by Movie, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. This week's new titles include... Barking Dogs Never Bite, the feature debut from the host and Snowpiercer director Bong Joon-ho. Bong's singular style and rhyme mixture of comedy and humanity all begin here. Plus two films from Movie's summer concert series. Ornette, Made in America, about jazz legend Ornette Coleman, who passed away last month. Shirley Clark's 1985 documentary is the perfect tribute, a decade-spanning endeavor, daring and unconventional enough to do justice to the master saxophonist. And Marley, an epic subject deserves an epic movie. This two-and-a-half-hour documentary by Last King of Scotland director Kevin MacDonald is a comprehensive portrait of Bob Marley and a treasure trove of concert footage. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of FilmSpotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash FilmSpotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash FilmSpotting. I'm Scott Tobias, former editor at The Dissolve, here with Genevieve Kosky, The Dissolve's former managing editor, filling in for Adam and Josh this week. This is week two of The Dissolve residency here on Film Spotting. also week two of putting a positive spin on the end of our former online home. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> last week, Genevieve, Keith Phipps and I shared the top five things we learned from The Dissolve, including my number one, which is running a startup movie website is hard. I think that would also be my number one. <laughs> and as I mentioned last week, it has been nice getting reacquainted with the outdoors. I've gone on walks. I went on another walk today. <laughs> so how are you finding life outside the uh, office? Uh, it, it's it's hot and bright. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I've also been going on walks. And, and something I've learned is that not having to keep a daily film website going uh, allows you to watch movies a lot more. Oh, I know. I've so watched that, so many movies. That has been a nice perk. I have, I have caught up on a lot of things. Yeah, me too. Me too. Gosh, I, I've seen my kids every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, my know, dog this, loves having me home. I know. I know. Taught there him a new trick. There are benefits, but I miss everybody so much. Uh, well, this week's top five as I said, continues our effort to think positively about life in general, but also about the movies. Genevieve and I will share the top five trends that make us excited about the future of movies. That's later in the show. But first, Tom Cruise has been doing the impossible for so long now, I'm beginning to think he may not know the meaning of the word. We find out in Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation. Mr. Chairman, the time has come to dissolve the IMF. 
is not just a rogue organization. It is a disgraced one. Shutting down the IMF is a mistake you may regret. This is Brent. Go secure. Go. The syndicate is real, and they know who we are. You need cooling! A rogue nation trained to do what we do. An anti-IMF. They're coming after us with everything they've got. Oh, boy. That was the trailer for Mission Colon, Impossible Dash, Dash. Rogue Nation, yeah. with Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. This is the fifth entry in a franchise that's nearly 20 years old. This time, Ethan and the Impossible Missions Force, which is a name I just I can't get over, are up against the Syndicate, a far-reaching shadow organization wreaking havoc around the world. Meanwhile, the IMF has become its own shadow organization as the CIA, represented here by Alec Baldwin, seeks to dissolve the unit for the imperfect results of its operations. When Ethan is kidnapped by the syndicate, he meets a British intelligence officer named Ilsa, played by Rebecca Ferguson, who appears to be an ally but might have a hidden agenda. Supported by a cadre of other IMF agents, played by Jeremy Renner, Simon Pegg, and Ving Rhames, Ethan goes on a number of unlikely or challenging or very difficult to complete missions to bring down the syndicate, restore IMF's reputation, and find out what Ilsa is all about. Genevieve, you prepared for this segment by watching all the Mission Impossible movies, which is what you can do now. (laughs) So where does Rogue Nation rank among them? Well, Scott, I'd love to tell you, but my answer is inside a virtual red box that requires a retinal scan followed by a fingerprint analysis and a code phrase spoken by the British Prime Minister. So can you get me those things? I'll work on it. Okay. All right. Well, in the interest of making this an achievable mission, I will open it for you and give you my answer. I think this is among the best. It was interesting binging these because they are... There's a very clear solidifying of the formula over time that allows the later entries like Ghost Protocol, which is probably at a tie for my favorite with this one, Mm -hmm. to kind of build on a really solid foundation and kind of take the franchise in not new directions, but higher. It's been able to build higher Mm -hmm. than than the first two entries. Yeah, Escalate. Escalate. That's a good bigger, Like bigger and better. Yeah. Yeah. Because why? Because you feel like the other ones were too busy establishing... Uh, I think, well, the first two movies were very, I mean, this has always kind of been a director's franchise. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a different director, each entry. And the first two entries by Brian De Palma and John Woo are very much showcases for those directors. There's no mistaking them as Brian De Palma and John Woo movies. And then with the addition of J.J. Abrams for Mission Impossible 3, we kind of moved into directors who are not untested, but who are um, don't have as much of an established style in terms of film. Mm-hmm. I would say there's a lot of J.J. Abrams's television style in Mission Impossible 3. Yeah. But... Flares, a lot of flares, th- th- blue there's, flares. A, there's a fair bit of flair, not too much, but... So there was... I don't want to say they've become less stylish because they're still very stylish films, but they're more cohesive, I guess, in a way than the first two are. Well, and the first one is almost famously convoluted. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Did, did you find yourself deciphering it a little bit I mean, I think, I think they're all pretty convoluted. I, yeah. Well, something I realized that by my count, Ethan Hunt is working 
in opposition to either knowingly or unknowingly, he's working in opposition at IMF in four out of five of these films. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not sure why he sticks with IMF because they haven't really done right by him in the past. But, you know, there, there's lots of double crosses and gotcha moments. So the, the films are all fairly convoluted. I, I wouldn't level that at only the first one. Well, it, it occurs to me now that you say it that it is a director's franchise, which is what's interesting about it. You get all these different styles, but I almost feel you need that because the basic formula is almost is so repeatable. Yeah. It's, just, it's so much like not even current television. It's like, well, the old the old television show where you, where you just kind of tune in and watch their adventures. I mean, there's no real difference. If you're a, completely new to the series, you could watch the fifth one. You could watch oh, the yeah. second one. You could watch them completely out of order. I think you'd miss a little bit of connective tissue between them, but you don't really not, need it. Not really. There's a couple like callbacks in this newest one to some earlier entries, but there, it's really like doesn't go beyond the realm of fan service. Right. The last movie, Ghost Protocol, directed by Brad Bird, kind of made a f- some steps towards serialization with Ethan Hunt's wife, played by Michelle Monaghan, kind of brought her in in a cameo appearance and, you know, talked about events of the previous film and brought back Simon Pegg. So there was a a little move toward making this uh, a more serialized story. And this new one just kind of does away with that. It still brings back Simon Pegg, which is a, a big plus in my book. But there's no mention of Ethan Hunt being married, which yeah. I'm I'm grateful for. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to being a standalone caper film. One thing I will say in favor of this film, which which I guess I should say I really like quite a bit. If I'm going to go, let me just rank them if I can because okay. I have to do that. I'm still putting the first one at, at number one because of the Langley, Langley sequence, yeah. which I think is that, phenomenal. That, if we were ranking sequences, that would be at the sure. top for me. But I, I would say this and the, the fourth and fifth are pretty close mm-hmm. to each other. And then the third and then poor John Woo yeah. comes in last, it's, right? It, it's so it's oh so Woo. I know. It's, it has, some, a, it has yeah. some really great <laughs> stuff in it. But one thing I will say in favor of this movie all, over the other ones is I think that on a character and plot level i think it's strong it's the strongest definitely and one of the reasons is this is co-written and directed by christopher mcquarrie mcquarrie has sole screenplay credit soul yeah soul. yeah there's a he, oh, she, she, a story he shares story by okay. credit yeah okay. but yeah the screenplay is all him well he wrote the usual suspects so it was his big mm-hmm. breakthrough and he's able to lay out a complicated twisty plot and a lot of complicated schemes within that plot very clearly, which is something that I think has troubled the series from the very beginning. And I'll admit to that even as a fan of the first film. And I think another thing about it is that the Mission Impossible movies are all about these sort of big set pieces, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, but, but the rhythm in the last, in most of them is like, we're going to kind of fiddle around a little bit and then we're going to build to this one set piece and then rinse and repeat. Yeah. This one has got an interesting pace to it because I mean because this one actually will string together set pieces so you've got this really incredible sequence where they have this underwater break in which I think is teased in the trailer but then you don't stop you don't stop there as as much as suspenseful as that sequence is they're not getting away that easily and so you immediately move into something else and it's it's very exciting just to have one set piece follow another one that closely yeah the last 50 minutes of this movie is just kind of non-stop there's there's little little breathing room and even the not so actiony sequences are tense in their in their own way so you don't lose that and i think there's a sense too with the film that that it's not trying to top 
the last one. I, th- you know, that sequence in the last one, which would maybe be my second the favorite. Khalifa? Right, yeah. right. Burj Khalifa's sequence. Oh, what are you going to do? How are you going to outdo that? He's hanging from the tallest building in the world. Well, they have him hang from a plane right. in this movie. But that is the cold open, yes. which, by the way, this movie has a cold open, which I kind of love as a uh, <laughs> callback to both the first movie and to the original television series. Yes. That that whole sequence in Belarus, I believe it is, yeah. oh, uh, in Minsk, where he's hanging off the plane. You know, it's the big stunt that the trailer builds to. It happens in the first three minutes of the movie yeah. and has no bearing on the story. Which I love. It's, yeah. like, it's like this incredible thing that you've been reading about with uh, Tom Cruise hanging off the plane. That's just a throat clearing Wait, thing. Wait, so are you saying he performed the stunt by all himself? I, I know. But <laughs> I haven't heard that. I know. <laughs> Tell me I'm more about sorry. it. sorry. <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a very impressive stunt. And, but, yeah. but I love the first thing you see Tom Cruise doing in this movie is running at top speed because it's been said before he runs like no other yeah he's you know? a runner and this movie just showcases him right from the beginning running really fast and dangling off something that's the Ethan should Hunt. we talk about Tom Cruise uh, I guess we have to because <laughs> I think that the, the I have my feeling is that the whole Mission Impossible series epitomizes the success of his career you know which hap- has happened despite you know, his limited range and despite a personal life that many find distasteful and weird. For one, he chooses to work with top directors. And this is a series that's all about that five different directors. You know, I think he has these this almost like curatorial instinct that's carried mm-hmm. him through. You know, he's worked with Scorsese, Kubrick, Spielberg, De Palma, every top director you can think of, Paul Thomas Anderson. And he's also someone who refuses to act his age and refuses to change. He's a 53-year-old who believes he's still Maverick and yeah. Top Gun. And there's he will not betray any sense of, of age. I mean, there's really no even worldly wisdom or even just kind of like that something you'd expect from a middle-aged guy. He's just not there. You kind of I, – I don't – it's perverse. And I feel like there's going to be some point – you know, where his body is just going to have to break down because that's what human bodies do and then what's going to be left. But for now, he's okay. At the same time, I think he recognizes his strengths as a star and doesn't venture outside them very often. This is so much in his wheelhouse. And even when it seems like he's outside of his wheelhouse in things like Magnolia or Tropic Thunder, the roles still comment on whatever we understand Tom Cruise's persona to be. Mm -hmm. What did you think of Tom Cruise in the movie? You know, I think he is the the anchor, you know, at the center of this movie. And I, I don't mean that in the sense that he is dragging it down, but that, that you know, he, he is the, with the exception of maybe Ving Rhames, he's the only, you know, person who's been involved in this franchise the whole time through, mm-hmm. you know, it is his franchise. And I think in these latter movies as they've brought in, well, they bring in new people every time, but these last two to three movies, they're kind of developing a, a recurring company with the addition of Peg and bringing Ving Rhames back and the addition of Jeremy Renner in the mm-hmm. last two movies. So it feels like they're kind of expanding this world beyond just Ethan Hunt and whoever happens to wander into his universe in that particular uh, movie. And I wonder if that is because there's Cruz and his fellow producers are thinking about where this franchise goes when... Tom Cruise, you know, runs out of whatever magical serum is keeping him going at age 53, I think mm-hmm. he is. You know, like, I don't know if the world is ready for a 60-something Ethan Hunt. Maybe maybe it is. You know, uh, he's proved us wrong with a 50-something Ethan Hunt. But I wondered, especially when they brought Renner in, 
in the last one if they were kind of grooming him to maybe take on this franchise the way he unsuccessful and the way he failed to take <laughs> yeah. on the Bourne franchise. <laughs> that would be kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> Simon Pegg, um, everybody. Or Ving Rhames. We'll yeah, just take, uh, give it to Ving Rhames. Yeah. He's probably but, older. And, and honestly, like, Rebecca Ferguson, uh, she was the, the first female character in one of these movies that I really want to see back. This, you know, for all of its good points so the major flaw of these movies for me is that they do not do well by their female characters mm-hmm. no no one has lasted more than a movie with the exception of michelle monahan who is basically just a cameo reappearance and she's the endangered wife you know right. but i thought rebecca ferguson was probably my favorite part of this movie Mine too. and i would love to see her become part of this recurring cast and in part for the way that she plays off Tom Cruise, like her character, Ilsa Faust, you, you forgot <laughs> yeah. her surname, which it's it's quite the Bond girl name, which I do yeah. want to get to the Bond comparisons to eventually. But her character, Ilsa, is pretty much Ethan Hunt's equal. She saves him a couple times. And he, you know, when they first meet, he's like, do I know you? Because there is this sense that they're very simpatico. And like, she's the female Ethan Hunt. And I, I would like to see more of her. Uh, and it reminded me, of course, of Edge of Tomorrow, which was written by Christopher McQuarrie, right? Because Edge of Tomorrow also guy. had also had, had Emily, Emily Blunt. Blunt yeah. Was it you know again in both films having having a really strong female lead or co-star really boosts mm-hmm. the films quite a bit. And a female co-star where there's not a romance foregrounded. Like there's there's a little hint of romance here, and there's a, a you know a little romance in Edge of Tomorrow, but it wasn't her primary role. In in either case, the female character wasn't the love interest. The other thing I'd like to emphasize about her is like she's the one true complex character in the movie you know she she's really the only character who's a mystery to us you know her motives are not as clear-cut as ethan's and that's because she's caught between the imf the syndicate and british intelligence i mean they're not not even clear to her really like she doesn't even know where her own loyalties lie because she's not clear who you know it's it's all very ambiguous who who's a good guy and who's a bad guy that's kind of a a theme of the movie like are imf doing good you know and her character, I think, reinforces that theme. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, so, the, yeah, that, the character reinforces that. And that theme is another thing we should talk about because, you know, what IMF is under scrutiny for is really the impossible <laughs> missions factor. The fact that they accomplish what they want to accomplish, but they often do it from out of luck. <laughs> they get yeah. lucky, you know, and, and if they don't get lucky, if something goes wrong, the results could be and have been catastrophic. Yeah, and the beginning of this movie actually addresses the, you know, collateral damage of the previous movie. You know, it shows the Kremlin before and after <laughs> the IMF, which is a, a nice little uh, joke. There's a lot of wit in this movie, too, mm-hmm. um, that I appreciated, and that was just one example of it. But, yeah, I mean, there's IMF is saving the world, maybe, at, but at what expense? You yeah, know? yeah, which I guess has kind of a, become a common superhero mm-hmm. movie theme. Yeah. Uh, it's like, oh, well, yeah, but look at all the, the buildings are all gone. Yeah. <laughs> Superman. <laughs> <laughs> Deal with that. Oh. And I think that as spy movies go, the Mission Impossible series isn't as engaged with the real world as something like The Bourne Identity, but it's not as removed as James Bond. It's kind of in a, mm-hmm. this place in between. And I think Rogue Nation more then the other ones does try to connect with our current situation. I mean, it does feel kind of like a post-Snowden movie where at least we have to try to start questioning what our spy agencies or these covert agencies are doing and whether it's beneficial to us. You know, I mean, I think, unfortunately, the mechanism of the narrative is always 
always leans towards these agencies are, are fine. You should trust them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because otherwise, that would be a pretty dark Mission Impossible mm-hmm. movie if they're, if they're corrupt and inept and uh, leading the world towards uh, disaster. But at least uh, the movie does engage a little bit in those questions. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the idea with the syndicate, which is composed of a bunch of former operatives from all over the world. So basically, it's composed of a bunch of Ethan Hunts. And the idea seems to be those skills could be put toward all sorts of different uses. And whether those are good or bad use depends on what angle you're looking at it from. Yeah. So. I think, uh, though I think the film doesn't, I think it sees pretty much everything yeah. they do is not a good thing no, to do. No, but by, but by introducing it as bad guys made up of a bunch of bizarro Ethan Hunts is uh, certainly nodding to the fact that it's not so clear-cut hero and villain in this world. It's like an all-star team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting. It's interesting to me that we're getting a new Mission Impossible film the same year we got a new Fast and Furious film Mm -hmm. and the same year we're getting a new James Bond film because the current iteration of all of these franchises are all sort of playing in the same sandbox. Furious 7 in particular played like a more like car-centric ghost protocol to me. (laughs) Yeah. So I can't help but hear the echoes of that film in this one, which also has a lot of car action, it must be said. Yes. Um, probably more than previous Mission Impossible films. And given that Rogue Nation brings in MI6, which is the organization that James Bond is part of, I suspect that I'll be hearing echoes of this film when Spectre comes out in November. So these films all have their own distinct flavor, but they're all kind of the same dish. Not that distinct. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it's, it's like they're they're all like the same basic casserole. It's just you're you're adding a, a couple different spices here or there. Yeah, I, mean, I, I guess the difference with this one from for, we haven't seen the James Bond right. yet, but it, uh, the difference between this one and Furious Seven was like this has got gr- this is like gritty realism compared right? to Furious. 7. I mean, I, yeah, I guess you can throw the Bourne movies. In in that pile as okay. well, but they—that's your gritty realism right. as far as these type of movie goes. Right. This is just kind of in that in between area, which yeah. is actually a pretty good place for yeah. it to be. But yeah, I do worry as I—I I like to do. I like to worry <laughs> about things about eating the same meal every time you go to the movies, yeah. even if it's a pretty good meal. Yeah, it's just it, the fact that they are all the same year and they're so evenly spaced out throughout the year really kind of solidified to me the idea that this is all kind of the same version of the same movie. But, you know, I loved Furious 7, and I'll really like Skyfall. I'll probably like Spectre. You know, like, it's it's a... You know, I don't mind coming back to this this big action movie meal every five months or so. But if it was every year... One thing I do like about Mission Impossible films is they take a long break between Mm -hmm. them. There's generally a a five-year break between those films. So, you know, it's still at the point where it seems special kind yeah. of if, if you're yeah. a fan of this series it's special yeah but i'd be hard pressed to rank the fast and furious franchise mission impossible franchise and the bond franchise just because they're all kind of the same thing right now oh come you on know? rank every james bond film no no, no i i mean uh, oh, just uh, one, about two, where three. they're at yeah, 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 well yeah. I, you know i'm gonna give i would give this one an edge over furious seven because of its strengths because of rebecca it's not Ferguson. quite as over the top right it's not as over the top <laughs> which is saying something for a movie plenty, where someone's hanging off a plane in the right. first three minutes right no yeah right again <laughs> gritty realism but yeah i would say because Rebecca Ferguson, and there's nothing in the entire Fast and Furious franchise as complex as that character. And, and because I think the plotting here is as clear as it possibly could be for a Mission Impossible movie. Yeah. And I think, I think the villain's good. We never really talked about the villain. I think, yeah. it's, I think the villain has kind of a Peter Lorre accent. And I just think, it, I think it's just a more complete 
film, both in, in terms of character plot action sequences than, than we've seen. I mean, I, I just, again, have the De Palma fetish, so I might give that, <laughs> I, I give that one the edge of the, over the series, but, but I think as a, as a complete movie, this is maybe tops, I think. Genevieve, do you have, uh, there, there are, what, a good four or five big set pieces in this movie? Uh, do you have a <laughs> yeah. favorite? Yeah, like, well, as we said, I don't think there's anything that quite rises to the level of the Langley break-in in the first movie, partly because that was completely silent, or mostly silent, which is very rare and uh, still sticks out even 20 years later. And there's nothing quite at the spectacle level of the Burj Khalifa sequence from the last movie. But as far as just pacing and tension, I really loved the an early sequence set at the Vienna Opera House set to there's a it's a pretty long sequence set to a Puccini opera that's playing in the back through most of this and it's very tightly choreographed Ethan and Benji don't quite know what they're after or who they're after at this point in the film they're you know they're kind of feeling around blind and there's anywhere from two to five possible like people that Ethan could follow and take out and mm-hmm. just kind of watching those paths uh, cross and intersect throughout this beautiful opera house with this very imposing soundtrack. Um, it was just, it was really well constructed on, on Macquarie's part. And, you know, everyone was wearing tuxes and pretty dresses, which always helps. <laughs> oh, and I, I, we have to bring this up, Genevieve. Genevieve, you were sitting next to me at this movie, and were, was ex- you were extremely excited because uh, Rebecca Ferguson was wearing high heels in that sequence, but at a certain point, they went on the run. Can you talk about yes, that? Yes, she took off her high heels, mm. which, if anyone remembers, I wrote an essay at The Dissolve about... Uh, the main character in Jurassic World never taking off her high heels, which I don't have a problem with female characters wearing high heels. But when the script draws attention to them and then fails to do anything with that, that's what I have a problem with, which is what Jurassic World did. This movie, it took a second to fix that problem in this movie. All Rebecca Ferguson did is like kind of look down at her shoes, look at Ethan and like it was a silent, can you take off these ridiculous shoes I'm wearing for me so that I can slide down this rope with you? They addressed it non-verbally, and it was a, a great little character moment. It was a great little punch. And I remember that they did the same thing in Ghost Protocol. Uh, Paula Patton's character mm. just very casually slips off her high heels right when she's like about to go into a, a big fight. It's such a simple thing to solve for, and movies so rarely solve for it that it just makes me giddy. Yeah, when... you're like you're like Charles Foster Kane. You're, <laughs> that, that was that kind of a standing ovation. You yeah. were really I, I think there were some that. air punches happening. Yeah, you were yeah. very excited. Yeah. That was a great sequence. That, that sequence reminded me that is one that could have been a Brian De Palma sequence because he mm-hmm. loves to work with music mm-hmm. even though as you said you know, the Langley sequence is silent, I think, in a it's sort of a Rafifi yeah. thing. But he loves to work with music and kind of construct sequences that way. And I, I thought, you're right, beautifully done. And oh. a, a, just a nice classic suspense sequence that also epitomizes the stakes in the movie where, where people, you don't know who's on whose side. And it's it's nice and complex. So, you know, so uh, it was, it's a good choice. And we should say so much of this franchise, or this series, is about you know, technology. Mm-hmm. And that sequence does have a couple cool technology reveals, one very high tech and one just ridiculous. I don't want to spoil it because it is a fun little moment, but I, I will say there is a gun made of something you would not expect a gun to be made of. <laughs> and it was amusing to me. 
yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Well, yes, you won't, you won't spoil it, but yes. uh, as much as I want to, uh, I guess if I were to choose a favorite sequence, if we're going to do that, mm-hmm. I would just choose two of them right together. They're right back to back, right underwater and the chase sequence. That is a, yeah. a terrible cheat. Uh, <laughs> I think I would actually choose yours as well. I think that's a yeah. good. But the, that's just a classic sequence. But 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 they all have a different kind of texture to them, which is nice. Yeah, the underwater centrifuge sequence is really cool. The thing that kept it from being my favorite is it was. The first time in one of these movies where I felt I really saw the CGI mm. happening, and that could just be, you know, water is, is tricky in, in CGI and especially moving water, which, you know, it's an underwater centrifuge and the water is moving. So there's a couple moments there where it's like, oh, I'm looking at a rendered version of, of Tom Cruise's face right now. But, you know, it, it's Tom Cruise. I'm sure he was underwater for a really long time. I'm sure he'd be very upset if I doubted that yeah, he... he was underwater for five straight minutes, <laughs> yeah, Genevieve. Yeah, yeah. The real Tom Cruise. <laughs> but so, you know, a, a little bit of the, the seams showed there for me, which kept it from being my favorite. But it was still really cool. And it, it was the over-the-top sequence of this movie. You know, the way the Burj Khalifa was the over-the-top oh, it was. sequence. It, you know? it was. Yeah, it was pretty close to impossible, that mission, <laughs> I thought. Well, it is. She said it's impossible. It is. Yeah. She... <laughs> <laughs> um, mission colon impossible dash Rogue Nation is open now and wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email filmspotting at feedback at filmspotting.net. Up next, how do film spotting listeners like their Tom Cruise? Arrogant in a cockpit or arrogant in a courtroom? Plus, some thoughts on the new indie, The Stanford Prison Experiment. Stay with us. I have awoken, the spell that has been broken Went through the cold, cold wind of the eastern snow On there was a silence comfortable There is nothing left to say This is Film Spotting with Genevieve Kosky. I'm Scott Tobias, in for Adam and Josh this week. That clip just whetting your appetite for next week's much-hyped, much-anticipated reckoning with David Lean's Dr. Zhivago. Zhivago, a film that, some have argued, marks a significant blind spot for both Adam and Josh. 
Lean's adaptation of Boris Pasternak's 1957 novel is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. It was the second highest grossing film of 1965, right behind The Sound of Music. It stars Julie Christie and the late Omar Sharif. The 50th anniversary and the passing of Sharif all make it as good a time as any to spend 197 minutes, not that Adam and Josh are counting, in the company of all those lovingly photographed fur-bedecked Ruskies. Genevieve, is Chivago a blind spot for you, too? Uh, yeah, I've, I saw it in college, but uh, it was in a class, and I have to admit, I may not have been giving it the full attention it deserves, because it is a very long movie, it and it was long. we watched it over, like, a full week. So uh, I've never seen it. Really? It's a blind spot for me, too. <gasps> this might be, like, the first movie that you haven't seen that I have. That you vaguely remember <laughs> that seeing. That I vaguely recall, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, Genevieve, we're unemployed. We can watch a 197-minute movie, we, can't we? We could do that. But <laughs> awkward gonna, silence. But again, we're gonna leave we're gonna leave that to Adam and Josh. Again, that blind spotting review of Dr. Shivago next week on film spotting. In just a bit, Genevieve and I have a review of the Stanford Prison Experiment. But first, results from the film spotting poll: a classic Tom Cruise death match, Top Gun versus A Few Good Men. Genevieve, how did this one play out? Maybe a bit of a surprise, but Top Gun was not the best of the best for this poll. It received 46% of the vote, which means A Few Good Men just barely wins the death match with 54% of the vote. That was a pretty I'm, close one. I'm a little disappointed. I thought it would get yeah. what, what I like to call the dissolve bump. Because <laughs> Keith and former I... Former movie of the week. Keith, Keith and I... Keith, former movie of the week. Keith and I, you know, kind of marginally favored that one. Are you are you a Top Gun person or a Few Good Men person? I think person? I'm a Few Good Men person. Okay. I'm going to go with the majority on this one. All right. I guess the listeners might be right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hear from one of our listeners. Edie in Chicago writes... This is an intriguing deathmatch. Both films deal with issues within the American armed forces during peaceful times, except the political slash strategic stakes are measurably higher in Top Gun than in A Few Good Men. Top Gun takes place during the Cold War, in which global nuclear war was a definite possibility. A downed fighter jet over the Bering Strait could have caused a catastrophic international crisis. In A Few Good Men, the drama depends on screenwriter Aaron Sorkin convincing us that the Cubans across the fence at Gitmo represent a true threat to American safety, which they didn't. These few brave men were standing on a wall, sure, but in the age of the hurt locker and the suck, their travails seem laughably tame. It's also cool, Edie continues, because the films are polar opposites. A few good men, as can be expected from a Sorkin script, is all talk, minimal action, minimal violence, minimal sex. Top Gun is a thrill ride. Unprecedented aerial stunt work, shirtless Adonises playing volleyball, Cruz and McGillis taking each other's breath away. By most objective standards, A Few Good Men is a better film. The script is better, the dialogue is sorkin good, the characters are more interesting, the conflict's more nuanced. Top Gun is a childish, simplistic, sexist, borderline fascist, escapist male fantasy. Obviously, A Few Good Men wins for things I know nothing about. Sound editing, cinematography, that kind of crap. And yet, Top Gun is the more iconic film, the more quotable film, the more memorable film. Most people I know can't remember anything about A Few Good Men other than the climactic Nicholson quote, while everyone remembers Val Kilmer inexplicably snapping his teeth at Cruz during one of their many sweaty exchanges. For this reason, my vote goes to Top Gun. That was a surprise. I did not. Usually, you don't you don't follow up calling something fascist by saying it was see it was the better of the two movies. That is a good point. Thank you for that, Edie. Now, Zach and Queens writes, and before I go into this, I should say that uh, this does include spoilers for those of you who haven't seen Top Gun or A Few Good Men. So consider yourself warned. I'll give you three seconds. Three, two. One. I'm shocked that this was close at all. Top Gun is not a good film. It's terrible, in fact. The conflict is disjointed, and the protagonist is a smug jerk. 
Somehow, the authority figures in the film reward him for his reckless behavior while simultaneously chiding him. Then he gets his friend killed, and it makes him sad for five minutes, so he wants to quit. But the movie conveniently reveals that his dad was a hero after all, as if to confirm that he's special and doesn't need to learn anything about himself for the course of the story. The romance is even more rushed and unbelievable, as if to ensure that we get more empty montages sent to music. Also, someone should have told Tony Scott that photographing a moving object in front of a perfectly blue sky gives no sense of speed or movement. What do you think of that, Scott? I guess that's right. I don't know. (laughs) Top Gun is an exceptionally dumb, self-satisfied movie that insults its audience's intelligence. A Few Good Men, on the other hand, is a great courtroom drama that actually has interesting things to say about authority, responsibility, and the downside of the armed forces' focus on hierarchy and obedience. I mean, just compare the most arrogant character in A Few Good Men, Jack Nicholson's Colonel Jessup, with the most arrogant character in Top Gun, Cruz's Maverick. The former is sent to jail while the latter is rewarded and gets to shirk the responsibility for his friend's death. And finally, here's Kim Zuckert. Um, neither? (laughs) Which, you know, Kim, that would probably be my answer, too. (laughs) Kim says, with a gun to my head, choosing the one that bores me slightly less than the other, A Few Good Men in a squeaker. Kim and I are pretty simpatico here. She goes on, but if both films disappeared off the planet tomorrow, I probably wouldn't notice. And frankly, I like Tom Cruise. I think he is underappreciated as a performer, and he has become an easy target for derision. But man, you couldn't make me watch either of those movies again without a Clockwork Orange-style eye-opening device. Wow. Come on. That's, that's a little rough. It's Miller time. That's the great thing I like about Top Gun. It's always Miller time. Uh, which brings us to this week's poll question and maybe more Clockwork Orange style torture for Kim Zuckert. We'll see. In a couple of weeks, Adam and Josh plan to review The End of the Tour, the new film with Jason Siegel as sadly departed writer David Foster Wallace. The film is an adaptation of Rolling Stone reporter David Lipsky's book, which details Lipsky's five-day interview with Wallace. In an interview which took place in 1996, just after the publication of Wallace's epic novel Infinite Jest. In the film, Lipsky is played by Jesse Eisenberg. There have been some good movies about writers over the years, and this week's poll question asks you to choose your favorite among a few of them. Genevieve, what are the options? First up, we have Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris, with Owen Wilson as a writer who finds himself magically hobnobbing with F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. Misery, with James Caan as a best-selling novelist who finds himself at the mercy of superfan and super sadist Kathy Bates. The Shining, you know, all work, no play, all that jazz. Wonder Boys, the adaptation of Michael Chabon's novel with Michael Douglas as an English professor who can't finish the follow-up to a successful debut novel. Or Young Adult, in which Charlize Theron's young adult novelist returns home to small-town Minnesota in the film from Juno writer-director duo Jason Reitman and Diablo Cody. Or... There's always other, if you really want to make a case for Margot Tenenbaum or David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch, or dot, dot, dot. I don't know. <laughs> I th- you got to Come on. You've got to vote other. Come on. I'm happy to see Young Adult as an option. Com- I, I, I think Young Adult is a severely underrated movie. It is. Though, I, this is a question. Here's a philosophical question I have for you <laughs> on this whole thing. Do you choose the best of these films, or do you choose the film that best illustrates the condition of being a writer because i have two different answers today i think you you follow your heart scott (laughs) okay Uh, because of course this list leaves out a whole lot of movies about or featuring writers the creators of the poll adam and company wish me to clarify that this list has been restricted to movie novelists and even further restricted to fictional novelists that is fictional characters not writers of fiction so no capote no angel at my table no the hours Hmm. It's a lot of no. Yeah. Can I just say what I'm going to do? I, I would, yeah, I would, yeah, I, because, again, I would prefer a film about 
the condition of being a writer, I would choose Wonder Boys off of this list. Mm-hmm. But I think it's The Shining's the best film in the world. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. That's kind what, of. What, a, are we, what are we even talking about this for? <laughs> kind of a ringer. Yep. Uh, vote now for the best movie about a fictional novelist at filmspotting.net. And if you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're writing from. Would you rather be a guard or a prisoner? I don't think I have the qualities to be a guard. Prisoner. Prisoner, I guess. Prisoner. Sounds like it would be a little less work. Prisoner. Why's that? Nobody likes guards. That's a clip from the Stanford Prison Experiment, directed by Kyle Patrick Alvarez, now in limited release. The Stanford Prison Experiment is a dramatization of the famous 1971 experiment of the same name, based on a book penned by the mastermind of that experiment, psychology professor Philip Zimbardo. Anyone who's taken a Psychology 101 class is probably familiar with the Stanford Prison Experiment, which randomly assigned 24 male students as either guards or prisoners held in a mock prison established in a basement at Stanford, presumably to study the roots of abusive behavior in prisons. However, the students took a little too well to their roles, and the experiment quickly devolved into an exercise in psychological torture, causing Zimbardo to call it off after only six days rather than the planned two weeks. Director Kyle Patrick Alvarez and writer Tim Talbot faithfully and somewhat creatively interpret the experiment in their new film, with Billy Crudup donning Zimbardo's mutton chops and a deep roster of familiar indie film faces taking on the roles of students, taking on the roles of guards and prisoners. (laughs) So, Scott, the first question I have for you. Sure. Would you prefer to be a guard or a prisoner? (laughs) I didn't think about that. Let me see. What would I prefer to be? Everyone in the movie seems to want to be a prisoner. Yeah, Uh, because uh, no one likes guards. Yeah, I know. But... Having seen the film and knowing how things go, I'm going to go ahead and say I want to be the, a guard. How about you, Genevieve? Uh, yeah, for, for the same reason. But my, my real first question for you, Scott. Okay. This film is billed as a thriller. So were mm. you thrilled? Thrilled? That's a strange thing for it to be billed as. It is. Uh, um, I, I was surprised I found by it, that, too. I found it completely riveting. I will say that. But I, I would think it's more of a drama with comedic elements than it is a... It's interesting that you found comedy in there. I, no, I, I, thought did, it was, I saw I thought very it was, little comedy. No, I thought it was, I thought it was really uh, hilarious. And you are had, had a sadistic a, man, Scott Tobias. <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to give away the end of this thing, but it ends with a, just a brilliant punchline. But there are, I think, bits of humor throughout, but mm, maybe yeah. we'll disagree about that. The film reminded me of another movie called S21, The Khmer Rouge Killing Machine, which is a documentary about the Cambodian genocide that staged scenes where former guards and former prisoners you know, reenact their experience from decades ago. And even though they've changed quite a bit since that time, just the act of doing that causes them to revert back to the same behaviors and the same terrors. And as flawed and as hilariously flawed as this experiment was, you can see how conditions alter behavior in a way that conscientious human beings never expect. You know, it's your job to run a prison under a certain set of rules, and the power dynamic between yourself and the prisoners is defined a certain way. And this experiment sort of posits that, that you're capable of doing terrible things. You know, you can't make any precise conclusions, I don't think, based on this the Stanford prison experiment. But I think you can broadly say that the experiment and then in this film call into question the notion that the abuse of detainees at Abu Ghraib, which is just the first thing that mm-hmm. comes to mind watching it, is not a matter of a few big bad actors, but an institutional dynamic being right. played out. And perhaps a human nature dynamic. Mm-hmm. There's a point in the film where a fellow professor asks Zimbardo what makes his project an experiment and not just a simulation. Mm -hmm. And Zimbardo gets defensive at the idea that he's basically kind of engaging in sadistic role play. 
But, you know, I'd ask a similar question to the makers of this film. What makes this a movie and not just a reenactment? I was very familiar with the Stanford Prison Experiment. You know, I, I took psychology courses. It's it's I'd say probably the most famous psych- yeah. psychology experiment ever. You know, uh, you, you go into it knowing what the outcome is going to be. So I was waiting for this movie to do something other than just play that out. Hmm. And there were some really nice performances and there was some nice style happening here. But there was really no question of how it was going to end for me. There was there was no there were no surprises here. Hmm. And that kept it from being truly engaging for me. Well, maybe it's maybe I just slept through psychology 101 <laughs> because I really wasn't that familiar with the details. Mm-hmm. So so watching it unfold was a, maybe a little bit more riveting for me than it right. was for you. But I just I think that it is fascinating the way it plays out. I think that it's such a relevant film to now. I mean, I mentioned Abu Ghraib, you can you can certainly mention uh, Guantanamo as well. And just the the way that we tend to think about situations in terms of uh individuals when we really should be thinking about the way some broader dynamic is being played out. You know, if, if there's, uh, you know, a riot in a city, you wouldn't blame, you know, stop blaming the rioters and start talking about what happens to human beings when order disappears and something, you know, and there are all these other combustible elements and this is what happens. I mean, I, I think it's important to take that step back. And uh, as much as this experiment was flawed <laughs> and kind of fascinating in, in its flaws, right. You know, I, I think there's a lot of truth there, and there's a reason why we keep talking about it. Um, and so, I think seeing it played out here, I just I found myself thinking about a lot of things. I, uh, uh, oh yeah, it's certainly it's the implications certainly relevant. of it were the yeah. implications of it were exciting to me, and and uh, and I felt like you know very well dramatized. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too hard on this because it, it, you know it was a well done film, and like you said, it is relevant to, to any number of power abuses over the years and what we're seeing now with police and prisoners in custody. You know, there's there's any number of connections you could make here. But this is not a new issue or a new idea. And it wasn't at the time of Zimbardo's experiment either. But heightening and dramatizing it as Zimbardo did with the setup and as Alvarez is doing with this film, it forces us to engage with it on a psychological and emotional level. It forces us to engage with these ideas. And that's where the performances come in here, which I thought were solid to great across mm-hmm. the board. I particularly liked Ezra Miller as prisoner 8612. All the prisoners are referred to by numbers. By numbers yeah. And I really liked Michael Angarano as the guard nicknamed John Wayne, who uh, took <laughs> took better to his role than anyone else. Better being a relative term, of course. But he was just... Uh, he was making a meal of the role of someone making a meal See, of a th- role. This is where I think the comedy comes in. This is where the this is where the yucks happen. Yeah, Genevieve. but that's that, it's very dark comedy there. But there's just like this switch that goes off in his head, mm-hmm. and suddenly he's well, John Wayne, or you know, kind of a southern warden from Cool yeah. Hand Luke, and and something goes off in him, and he's just playing that character. And of course, people have seen Michael Angarano in movies before, specifically Sky High, is how I remember him best and when he's just such a kind of a sweet earnest kid so that kind of added sort of an extra thrill to have him play someone this dark and it's also interesting to see again the fact that when he adopts this persona of the sadistic southern warden his conscience goes away and he he just slips right into this role and that is a role that is defined by you know the rules of of power uh, mm-hmm. in this prison. So that's fascinating. It's also fascinating to watch the prisoners them react the way that they do 
some of whom are obedient and committed to self-preservation, and some others like Ezra Miller as prisoner number... <laughs> uh, prisoner number 8612. Prisoner number 8612, very rebellious, trying to foment riots, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just, it's one of the, it's such an insane thing because, you know, you do every once in a while think, oh yeah, they're just at the bottom of a, the basement of like a hall, right. like a student hall, and they're talking about prison riots and, and you know, being thrown in the hall. Yeah. But you also get immersed in that world too. You mean to tell me that you spent all day long in that stinking hole because you wouldn't eat two lousy little sausages? God damn, boy. Well, maybe you want us to take them sausages and cram them up your ass, huh? Bet you like that, 416, won't you? <laughs> Just because you have no friends doesn't mean you have to make everyone else suffer, 416. New guy. Look at me. There you go. The hell is your problem, boy, huh? My problem is that the guards and the people running this experiment are not treating the prisoners like human beings. The hell has that got to do with sausages, huh? The guards and the experimenters are clearly... You address me as Mr. Correctional Officer. These kids were engaging in psychological torture tactics, you know, sleep deprivation, forced physical exertion isolating them in in a dark room you know uh, this it was pretty serious business and the fact that it is this sense of oh they're just in a basement in some lecture hall you know it doesn't make it any less scary to me mm-hmm. it doesn't make it any less upsetting to me so i guess i had a little harder time engaging with that aspect that that you seem to find comedic. Uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying it's got like a little thread. I'm not saying it's a laugh riot here or anything. But I I can't wait to see the DVD case with the laugh riot Scott Tobias on. <laughs> That's right. You know, I I'm also intrigued by the character of Dr. Zombardo mm-hmm. who's played by Billy Crudup, who's also quite good. Yes, right? he, he Billy Crudup has like an inherent kind of skeeviness to, to him that yeah. you know, it, it either works for or against or his roles and it it worked for this character for the most part for the most part yeah but the character is so interesting mm-hmm. in that and that whenever there is a dispute he constantly sides with the guards because he just wants to keep the experiment going you yeah. know he just has to just you know he's like that judge in the movie who, who constantly says i'll allow it whatever yeah. shenanigans are he, going on he, in the he keeps saying they're following protocol they're following protocol and yeah. it's like this is your protocol you designed this experiment yeah and i like one of the interesting things the film does and then backs away from is really kind of engaging with is Zimbardo at fault here or how at fault is he? Mm-hmm. You know, is he a bad guy? Because there's many, many, many occasions where someone says to him like, eh, something's not quite right here. And he just falls back on its protocol. It's the experiment that, you know, mm-hmm. I want my results. And there's one part where he says, but this is important to me. Mm. And the results are also important. But his first thought is, this is important to me. And you get the sense that he has gotten way too invested in the setup. And as you say, is kind of identifying with the guards, perhaps. Well, I mean, this was supposed to be a 14-day experiment. And really, it, I mean, I guess there could have been more subtle measures, uh, interventions. But intervention, intervening experiment would taint it. Not that this experiment wasn't already yeah. completely flawed. But I think there's that reluctance to kind of step in just because it's in his interest to take it as far as he can take it and get the results he's going to get. And so he, he does end up 
you know, allowing some pretty shocking things to happen. Yeah. And, and because of that, I think the incident that eventually makes him call it off, which that's not a spoiler. It's in this, you know, we know. History. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The, the incident that does eventually make him call it off doesn't seem heightened enough in comparison to the other incidents that he brushes off. Yeah. And the movie falls apart for me a little at the end, just as far as Zimbardo's character goes. And I don't I don't really see the turnaround there. I don't see it develop in a way. Well, I think it because it, the catalyst for that turnaround, I think, is this character who's played by Olivia, Olivia Thurlby. Yeah. Um, and she, I think, is credited. She is his wife. Uh, do you know her name? Does, is that, uh, that name? Dr. Christina Maslach. Right. She And she kind of comes former in. Former student of his. A former student. She kind of comes in towards the, in the last couple of days and really kind of has a clear perspective on things. And I feel like she gives him that bit of... She nagged him yeah. into <laughs> she nagged. She that, she I, I did have a little bit just of a knee-jerk reaction to the fact that the only female character in this movie is the one who comes in and scolds the male protagonist and causes him to, <laughs> to shut down his experiment. Though I think you, but I, that's a good thing. I, yes, exactly. Case. I think you would probably stop short of calling her a nag, yeah. <laughs> just because she is coming in with some common sense and saying yeah. this has gone way, way too far. And and, and I think you know the po- in the postscript is that of the film is this recognition by the real Zombardo of what the significance of this is, and uh, he's written books and spoken out about you know on on issues of of imprisonment and prison dynamics and that sort of thing. So. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, so I feel like she's the catalyst for that turnaround. But I guess I would agree with you that that's such a late in the fourth quarter thing mm-hmm. where it doesn't feel like he's made like a slow evolution. It's very rapid and uh, not quite as earned okay. as it would be. But I feel that but the heart of the movie to me is just the experiment itself and how it plays out. And uh, and I, I feel like just on, on a performance level, on a filmmaking level, on a plausibility level, it all worked really well for me. It worked mostly well for me. Okay. Well, the Stanford Prison Experiment is out in limited release now from IFC Films. Still to come, Scott and I talk over our top five trends that make us excited about the future of movies. Stay with us. Sometimes it feels so idle, like I'm watching the world go by. The bustle of the city is making me Listening to Film Spotting, filling in for Adam and Josh this week. I'm Scott Tobias with Genevieve Kosky. 
And now it's time for our top five trends that make us excited about the future of movies. And I have to say, Genevieve, <laughs> this is like, this is Sam's idea. And I think it's, uh, the force positivity is like basically your parents telling you to be uh, nice <laughs> to your sister, say something nice about your sister. So this is kind of <laughs> like what this exercise is for me. So I'm going to try to put my crankiness aside for the most part to do this list. But I'm curious what your number five is. Yeah, it was difficult for me, too. I probably could have come up with 15 trends that make me despair about the future of movies. But, you know, top five, uh, we're, we're, we're going to be positive. So. Yep, let's do it. On that note, I'm going to start on an ambiguous note, which is my number five is the rise of luxury movie theaters. Mm. And this is one that honestly could have gone either way for me. I went back and forth about whether this was a positive or negative trend. Because the thing about these fancy theater upgrades like, you know, recliner seats and cocktail bars is that they tend to come with exorbitant prices tags that can make a night for two at the movies a $50 proposition. That is, to my mind, definitely a bad thing. However, in the interest of looking on the positive side, in an era when it's easier than ever to watch movies, even first-run movies, from the comfort of your own couch, anything that gets people out to the movie theater counts as a win in my book. <laughs> it's a qualified win for sure, particularly because it puts smaller and art house theaters at a disadvantage. But I'm hoping that this is a, you know, rising tide lifts, lifts all ships sort of trend and that it reinforces the cultural idea that going to the movies is something special and event worth celebrating and inevitably paying for. You know, plus I like drinking beer with my movies. <laughs> I think we may be hearing more about this particular oh. trend later in the segment, Genevieve. I, I kind of think we might have a there lot may be a of little overlap. overlap here. All right. Well, let, let me see. Let me try my number five, which is it doesn't take much money for a movie to look great. And this was something I touched on a little bit last week when I was talking about the impact digital cameras have had on documentary filmmaking. But I think we can go broader with it. Uh, you know, much as I lament the death of celluloid, I can't deny that shooting digitally is much cheaper and the medium has become more democratized. The dark days in the mid-90s when movies shot on video were guaranteed to look muddy and awful, look like they were shot through like a sweat sock, uh, they're, they're largely gone now. And uh, you know, just last week, uh, Keith and I reviewed Tangerine, a film that was shot on iPhone 5s, and that, in my view, had more vibrancy. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Oh, you saw it? I did, at the music box. Oh, good for you. I was like, you've got to see that if you yeah. haven't seen it. And it's got more vibrancy and texture than, than most of the films I've seen seen this year. So that's really exciting. Filmmakers still need to care about lighting and composition, so I'm not going to let all <laughs> DIY filmmakers get away with uh, their slackitude. But the potential for a great movie looking movie is always there at any budget level, and that's kind of exciting. I don't know. I think video is going to make a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> like the old video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Genevieve, what's your number four? My number four is the box office success of women-led films, specifically overseas box office success. It's been apparent for several years now that the myth that films with female protagonists don't do as well financially as those with male protagonists is just that. It's a myth. The Hunger Games franchise is usually what people cite here, but it goes back to at least Bridesmaids, and this rebuttal of the idea that female-led and targeted films can't open big at the box office. 2013 in particular was a huge year for female-driven films, with women-led films outgrossing male-driven films handily. But as we all know, domestic box office isn't what really matters to the people green lighting and making big budget studio films. It's international box office. And the idea that female led films don't open big overseas has persisted. Frozen did a lot to help with that idea, but this year in particular has been really big for female-led films overseas. We had Cinderella, Home, Mad Max Fury Road, and perhaps most interestingly, Spy, all making more overseas than they did domestically. And films like Pitch Perfect 2 and Inside Out also far exceeded their international expectations. 
I mean, when I gave up teaching to join the CIA, I thought everything was going to be different. I thought I was going to be this amazing spy. I'm just the same boring person I was before. Well, for what it's worth, I think you're brilliant as you are. I mean, look, OK. What's really so different between us and Karen Walker? Um, I think, I think literally everything. No, hang on, no, because you were just as good as her at the Academy. She, she's had more successful missions than even fine. Oh, she's the worst. The international success of Spy, in particular, is very heartening sign to me, not just because I loved that movie, but because it's a non-animated comedy, which traditionally have had a harder time of it overseas than animated action and fantasy films, presumably just because humor is harder yeah. to translate. And we still have the last Hunger Games on the horizon, which should firmly cement the idea that the gender of the protagonist does not have an inherent effect on a film's box office fortunes, domestic or international. No, that is encouraging, and, and because... You know, international box office is so much the driver now. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I had no idea that Spy was that yeah. successful. That is really exciting. My number four is your number five, which is that the theatrical experience is getting better. Throughout movie history, uh, developments in other mediums, particularly television, have prompted the industry to think about ways to reinforce the superiority of seeing a movie on the big screen. This is how we got processes like CinemaScope, for example, which made the screen much bigger than the square box that you can watch in your living room. The rise of HD televisions, you know, is... I think the biggest threat to movie theaters mm -hmm. that there has ever been, and I don't know if they can really answer that in a, in a lot of ways, but the response from the industry has been encouraging in some respects and not all. I don't know if you mentioned 3D, but 3D and its surcharges, yeah. I could really just go, that whole thing could go away, even if 3D is more sophisticated now and is occasionally... What about right. fake IMAX? Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> no, that's just surcharge city. Yeah. But theaters have been aggressive, as you say, in replacing standard seats with comfy chairs and recliners. And you can also have a drink in many chains if you like. Just yesterday, <laughs> Genevieve, you and I sat there watching Mission Impossible 5 in big chairs, comfy chairs with a beer. It was lovely. It was lovely. Though, uh, <laughs> <laughs> though I will say... You know, be careful with the plan with your how, bathroom breaks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> consider the running time. Consider the size of the beer before you make your decisions, because it's a little rough. Last yeah. half hour of that movie, I'm going to say. But uh, yeah, I like the. I think the theatrical experience is by and large getting better because it has to be, and I think that's good. My number three is the gradual decline of the bro comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, I just had this as the decline of Adam Sandler's fortunes because the one-two punch of the controversy surrounding his ridiculous six and the box office bomb of Pixels has me feeling a little giddy about uh, but frankly Sandler's probably going to keep raking in money as long as he can you know convince his buddies to go on vacation together and call it another grown-up sequel but the relative downward trajectory of Sandler's career over the last five years or so to me looks like part of a larger downward trend of the so-called frat pack movies of the early to mid-2000s now, there are a lot of films that fall under that designation that I like to varying degrees, like Old School, Dodgeball, Tropic Thunder, and even something as recent as last year's Neighbors. And they are by no means going away completely, as evidenced by the upcoming Zoolander sequel. But 2015 so far has seen a bunch of bro-targeted movies that have been moderate to big old flops. We had Unfinished Business, we had The Wedding Ringer, Get Hard, Hot Tub Time Machine 2, Ted 2, and perhaps most delightfully, The Entourage movie. <laughs> flopped big. Did you see that one? I didn't. Oh my god! I'm the reason it flopped big. <laughs> now, I don't want to come, this to come across like I'm celebrating the fact that a bunch of movies that aren't targeted to me specifically didn't do well. But I am celebrating the fact that it seems like it's no longer enough to throw Will Ferrell or Vince Vaughn or even Kevin Hart into a half-baked comedic premise and expect it to be a big hit just based on previous successes. 
I love a good R-rated comedy. I love a good fart joke. But the unchecked <laughs> success of these kinds of movies in the 2000s led, in my opinion, to a lot of laziness. And I'm mm. hoping that the fact that it seems audiences are no longer responding to these movies the way they once were means that studios and filmmakers will be forced to start trying a little harder. Yeah. Lazy bros. Yep. That's what we don't want. Yep. I think they actually should make Grown Ups 3 and release it just so it will bomb. Just <laughs> yeah. so we can just take it down. Um, but I, I, I agree with you on that, too. That, that stuff gets tiresome. And anything that allows for lazy filmmaking to be successful without you know that extra effort that's i have nothing but contempt for that and you know how deep my contempt goes very deep uh my number three is the positive effects of globalization i talked about the democratization of the movies back in number my number five and one of the benefits of that is that we're seeing movements pop up in unexpected places we don't have to look to western european countries like france or italy or germany to lead the world cinema movement we're getting these gardens of cinema in places like Iran and Thailand and Romania, which is consistently producing some of the best films in the world. Uh, one of my favorite films this year is a Mauritanian movie called Timbuktu. And my suspicion is that we'll be seeing a much more diverse selection of breakthrough movies and movements out of Africa or South America or the Philippines or places that haven't had a strong national cinema in the past. And that's owed a little bit to technology and just a greater sort of global awareness. And, uh, and we're just getting, getting to see parts of the world and ways of looking at the world that we haven't before. So that's kind of exciting. That is exciting. Uh, how about you? What's your number two? All right. At number two, I have The Ascent of Female Driven Comedy. Based on my last one, you probably knew this was coming. But let me explain. The The heartening trend here isn't that, you know, female-led comedies are thriving while bro comedies are floundering because, you know, girls rule and boys drool. <laughs> it's... I'm excited that conventions are being upended, which ideally leads to studios and filmmakers being challenged to do better by their comedies, regardless of their target gender. But here's what excites me about the last couple years of female-led comedies in particular. It's not the quantity of them, though that is heartening. It's the different kinds of funny women we're seeing in movies. This year in studio films alone, we have Spy, Trainwreck, Pitch Perfect 2, Inside Out, and the upcoming Ricky and the Flash, all of which have very different comedic vibes. Well, I'm assuming Ricky and the Flash does. I haven't seen it yet. And they all have very different protagonists. And then on the indie side, there's been some challenging but really fun stuff like Appropriate Behavior, Welcome to Me, and Upcoming Grandma, or Last Year's Obvious Child. I've seen a lot of articles calling this the quote-unquote bridesmaids effect, and I'll buy that to the extent that bridesmaids upended a lot of expectations of how women can be funny in films, specifically that they can be as unlikable and damaged as any frat pack male protagonist. But I think as more of these films become successful, it gives female comedians and filmmakers more freedom to push boundaries and get really specific in what they're doing comedically, because there's less pressure to prove something or to represent an entire gender with a single movie. I hope that Hollywood and independent studios both continue to flood the market with female-driven comedies, even not-so-great ones. Here's looking at you, Hot Pursuit. <laughs> because then female-driven comedies can stop being held up as exemplars or as case studies and be evaluated on their own merits. Now, these are all, these are all good trends, and I, I like the idea of movies not having to carry that much weight, as you say, of not having to represent all womankind, yeah. that you can start to get specific and it just become a common thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and a lot of these movies you mentioned are very exciting and some of them are quite small. So uh, any, any of these titles that you, the listener, have not heard of or seen, yeah. you should probably check them out. All right. Yeah. What about you, Scott? What's number two? Uh, number two is great discussions continue to flourish online. Don't try not to laugh about that, <laughs> <laughs> you internet trolls. Quite up. You know, we, we've talked about how lucky we were at the Dissolve to have a comment community that was really passionate about movies and about having smart, 
productive conversations about them. But I think it's important to note that these conversations are not always in comment sections, but in small communities and message boards that aren't in the public eye, including the film spotting boards, for example. In the late 90s and into the 2000s, my own critical voice was developed in this online forum in which uh, writers and cinephiles and other such nerds uh, challenged each other to argue and think more expansively about film. And the internet is really good for that. You know, not every place is good for that, but the internet, you can find these, these little communities. And you can see it now on multiple sites and tumblers and blogs that exist mainly as passion projects, but keep the conversation going. So, um, yay, online conversation. It's not as bad as you think. Yeah, also Twitter. <laughs> yeah, kind of Twitter. Yeah. These people. That's like it's like farting in a room in that in that in Twitter. Um, so, but uh, Genevieve, we're we're to number one. This is exciting. Okay. Yeah. What is your number one trend here? My number one trend is that we're starting to have more conversations about representation in film. Are you starting to sense a bit of a theme here with, I, with, I with my trends? I am. Okay. Look, if you, like me, spend a lot of time thinking about the role of women and minorities in the film industry, the past couple of years have been really exciting and to some extent disheartening. There's been a lot of, okay, well, maybe not a lot of, but some progress over the last few years in terms of diversity, both in front of and behind the camera. But we're still a long ways away from the point where what's showing on movie screens is reflective of the people watching those movie screens. But in the last five years or so, we've seen more and more conversations about representation of women and minorities, primarily online, but also at film festivals and on promotional circuits. And granted, they're not all good conversations, but for every, you know, Black Widow is a slut moment or (laughs) Phil Lord and Chris Miller saying they're going to put more female stuff in the Lego movie, too. You have something like Megan Ellison and Jane Fonda speaking out at Cannes about women in film or Ava DuVernay passing on Black Panther when it became apparent she wouldn't be able to say the kind of things she wanted to say within the Marvel machine. You know, that's exciting to me. And I think that we as a culture seem excited right now to have these sorts of conversations, even when they're difficult and divisive, because I think it truly does lead to progress down the line. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and there are those conversations, it's certainly in the, in the media world that we mm-hmm. were a part of. Yeah, uh, that, that, that is the thing I miss most about The Dissolve, yeah. is having a place to have those conversations. No, and, and, I, and, I, and you can see it really in the evolution of the site, too. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, aesthetics were still a primary thing for The Dissolve, mm-hmm. but uh, matters of representation were important to us and, and have definitely become more important everywhere. So, uh, and, and I think that that can only increase pressure upon the powers mm-hmm. that be to uh, think about the choices that they make and uh, and really ultimately lead to better films and, and filmmakers who would not have gotten a chance to make films in the past who get a chance to make films. So exactly. it's a good choice. Take us home, Scott. Okay. Number one. My number one is that uh, people from Des Moines can see art house movies <laughs> too. You know, there are all sorts of negative implications to the rise of digital distribution and all that it takes away from theaters, especially independent theaters. But if you're not living in a big city center like New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, you haven't had access to all the weird little independent and foreign movies that don't make it outside to more than a few places, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that someone in Des Moines, I love, Des Moines always my go-to. Des Moines your go-to. It's always my go-to. It's not that small. Des Moines, there's probably, I'm sure there's an art house theater in Des Moines where it's like, come on, guy, man, we're we're bringing it, we're doing the best we can. We got one screen here. Um, You know, the fact that someone can, can, uh, well, it's in Davenport, Iowa, can pay $7 to watch The Wolf Pack or White God or Results at the same time as someone in New York is an exciting development and will inspire future filmmakers and critics if they want to go into this field uh, from different parts of the country. And so, uh, you know, theoretically, you won't have to wait to participate in this discussion about these movies either. You can have the same 
talk with these city slickers on the movie that, uh, on the day the thing comes out. So uh, yes, but can you recline and drink a beer while watching? Those you're at home. Holy, that's all you darn do. It. That's all you do at home is recline and drink beer. So uh, that's our top five. I feel I feel better. I feel like this is maybe yeah. it was a good exercise for us to be positive because oh man, we could do a top twenty on the things I don't feel good about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was a tough one. It it burned being that positive, <laughs> but we did it. So those were the top five trends that make us excited about the future of movies. If there are some trends that make you excited about the future of movies, uh, we'd be happy to hear them. Send email to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave a voicemail at 312-264-0744 or find the show on Twitter at filmspotting and at facebook.com slash filmspotting. You can also find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky and me at Scott underscore Tobias over at filmspotting.net you can find 10 years of reviews marathons and top fives also at filmspotting.net take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll favorite movies about fictional writers opening and limited release this weekend Samba the new film from the directors of The Untouchables with Tahar Rahim the Stanford Prison Experiment, which we reviewed on the show. And opening at Facets, we have All of Me, a documentary about a group of women who cook, pack, and throw food to migrant workers riding north on a train called The Beast from South America to the U.S. At the Gene Siskel Center, there's Iris, which is the final documentary from Albert Maisel's. Uh, this is about a fashion designer named Iris Apfel. The Kindergarten Teacher, an Israeli drama about a teacher who discovers a prodigy-like gift for poetry in a student. And A Pigeon Sat on a Bench Reflecting on Existence, which is the third of a trilogy of films from Roy Anderson. The first two were Songs from the Second Floor, which is my favorite. You the Living, which is my second favorite. And this one is my th- is uh, <laughs> Diminishing Returns. Uh, but, but really, if you are, are a fan of those two films or just like absurdist comedy in general, it is essential to see, I think. And opening wide, we have Vacation, the reboot. Remake, reboot, remake, your choice, of the 80s Harold Ramis-directed Chevy Chase starring comedy with Ed Helms and Christina Applegate. It's a continuation, actually. It's oh. not even a re- It's not a reboot or a remake. Oh. This is Rusty, grown up. Oh, that's going right. Going on the same So vacation. a belated sequel. Oh, boy. And it's got all of the gross stuff that you are looking for in a vacation movie. And, of course, uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation opens this Friday and definitely is the movie to see. And next week, Adam and Josh have promised to reveal every detail of their Dr. Zhivago date night. That blind spotting review, plus the film spotting top five and more. Film spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, the show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Music this week from Heartless Bastards and the new album Restless Ones. More information at heartlessbastards.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Genevieve Kosky. And I'm Scott Tobias. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.